Education is often at the top of the Missouri General Assembly's rhetorical checklist, and one of the people who's entrusted with filling out the details is State Senator David Pierce. The Warrensburg Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And the Missouri Senate's best wearer of red sport coats is joining us today. We have in our Jefferson City studio... Senator David Pierce in, in the state capitol. He's a Republican senator from Warrensburg. He is in his last year of his second term in the Missouri Senate. He's a veteran of the Missouri General Assembly, and I have to say, just to kind of suck up to you at the outset, one of the nicest legislators, I think, in the entire Missouri General Assembly. Thank well, you. I hope that's a good thing. I hope that's good. Um, well, depending on who you ask, if, if you if you like ruthless legislators, uh, Senator Pierce is Now prob- people are going to ask which group they're in every time they come I, on. I, I, which one are you, right? I have ruined everything. So um, before we ask you kind of about your life story and the hard-hitting issues of the day, just tell us a little bit about what the 21st Senatorial District encompasses. The 21st Senatorial District is mainly a rural district. It's in west-central Missouri. Uh, I come from Warrensburg, which is in Johnson County, and it's the, it's the largest town in that district. And then there are seven other counties, uh, Lafayette, uh, Ray, Caldwell, Livingston, Carroll, Saline, and Howard. And so, um, per, for the most part, rural. Uh, I, I really enjoy the district. Um, I've been in the Senate two terms, and it's a, a pretty dramatically different uh, district that I served in the first term, which had Cass County, which was really a metropolitan area of Kansas City. So, uh, I've had the chance to, to represent both, and I've enjoyed them both. We'll get to your, your wacky trajectory in electoral politics in the Missouri <laughs> Senate in a minute. But tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you did before you went to politics, and where Joe, you grew up, and where, where you went, went to high school. and where you went to high school. Okay, uh, I grew up in Warrensburg. Uh, my father uh, taught uh, at the university there, so that was my home. And uh, I, it seemed like I've always been involved in uh, community activities growing up. 4-H, FFA. We kind of came from a small high school, so you just did everything. Um, what was your specialty in 4-H? I used to be in 4-H. Oh, no kidding. Uh, woodworking, um, outdoorsman. Those were fun things to do. Didn't do the cooking or the sewing, though. Yeah, hey, um, I got a blue ribbon for sewing, actually, and that's absolutely really? true. Yeah, and I still have a, a woodworking project, a Lazy Susan, that I made like when I was 14 and got a blue ribbon, went to the state fair, so I still have that at my oh, house. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yes, and, that is uh, cool. So it was a, both of those organizations were great because it just taught you a lot about leadership and getting involved and making speeches. Um, responsibility, record keeping. So those are some things that uh, that I like to do. And, I, and from what I have saw, you are a graduate of the University of Missouri Columbia, and you got a degree in agricultural journalism. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, Ag- what exactly does journalism. that entail? Well, that, that's uh, that's an interesting question. It, it's like having a uh, uh, major in journalism with a minor in agriculture. And uh, it's through the Department of, uh, of, of Ag at the University of Missouri and with a cooperation with the journalism school. 
And um, so my my uh, expertise was in broadcasting. So I did more broadcasting as opposed to print. So and did so, you broadcast uh, what what crop futures or kind of how? Well, uh, what was that, entailed? At, when I was going to school, uh, I I did a little uh, part time work at Brownfield Farm Network, which was out of uh, Centertown, Missouri, near Jeff City. So um, sure, agriculture news uh, gave uh, the market reports, uh, pork bellies. You know the prices, things like that. So yeah, that's what I did. That's that's kind of one one thing I wanted to do is maybe go into journalism. Yeah, the reason I mentioned that, and this is a story I've never told on air before. Da, da, da. Um, but when I was <laughs> applying to colleges, I, I'm from suburban Chicago initially, and my parents wanted me to apply to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I did mm-hmm. not have a high enough ACT score to get in at the regular journalism school. So they suggested that I apply for the agricultural journalism school. Actually, not not agricultural journalism, agricultural economics. Do you want this oh out? My. Go ahead. And uh, I applied. Um, they asked me for an essay on this, and I did not uh, send an essay, and I got rejected from the University of Illinois because I knew literally nothing about agricultural well, economics. Well, at least you were honest. I, I was. So you were, you were an ag econ reject, huh? <laughs> I hope that so makes everybody. You, yeah, I hope that makes everybody feel now. Yeah. So, um, what made you decide you wanted to run for the state legislature in the first place? Because you served three terms in the House, and you're in your second term in the Senate. What made you want to to, to join the wacky world of Missouri politics in the first place? Well, you know, I've just always been involved in in the communities. Um, I just I think that it's it's uh, fun to volunteer and to to accomplish things. Uh, I think when I was in FFA and and had a chance to travel a lot, got to meet President Reagan and, and visit with several governors in different states, it just really, I think, encouraged me to get involved. Um, and then I ran uh, for the first time as a state representative when I was 26 and got beat. And then I didn't run again for political office for 16 years. And so um, sometimes in politics, you just have to wait your turn if that turn ever happens, you know, so uh, um, I just think that uh, when you're looking at that, you just have to kind of see what the issues are and, and if you're right for, for a certain position. What drew you to make the second attempt? Was there something about politics or some issue that prompted you to say, I got to do this? Um, probably term limits and the fact <laughs> in, in 2002, there was an open seat yeah. and and uh, the incumbent was leaving. And I thought, well, it's now or never. Um, and so in 2002, I decided to run again for the House of Representatives, pretty tough race and, and got elected to that. So that I think that's what opened it up. And so, you know, when people talk about term limits, I, I have, you know, mixed emotions. Uh, now that I'm, I'm leaving very soon, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd rather not go, but I do realize I wouldn't be here in the first place if it wasn't for term limits. So, you know, there's some, there's some good things and bad things about term limits. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, again, your trajectory to the Senate, because what ended up happening was, as you kind of alluded to, you were in a Senate district that was occupied by then State Senator Chris Coster, who right. was a Republican, became a Democrat. And when he announced that he was going to become a Democrat, he also announced he wasn't going to run for reelection in his Senate district anymore. Right. Possibly because if he ran as a Democrat, it's a Republican-leaning district. I know Harold Caskey represented it for years and years yeah, and years. Yeah, but he was going to run for attorney general. Yeah, but he, was running, too... but, but he was running. I don't want to get too much in the weeds. So in any case, I think you announced that you were going to run. And then besides having a Republican primary opponent, um, a former staff member for Rod Jetton, Chris Je- Benjamin, who was a Republican, switched parties to the Democratic side and then 
ran against you in this very weird example of synchronicity, <laughs> considering the circumstances of why the seat got vacated in the first place. Um, was that a weird experience for you, first of all? Well, uh, not only that, Chris was my campaign manager, and and he had helped me raise funds, uh, worked on the strategy. Uh, we had gone out campaigning, and then uh, in December, before we were going to file a few months later, um, found out that not only was he not going to help me anymore, uh, he was going to switch parties and run against me. And um, so uh, it does, <laughs> you know, because when you, when you decide to run, you have to put your faith in others, and, and you trust people. And um, so, I mean, just really had to start over. And uh, um, no kidding. And so, yeah. So, so that's that's one thing that that taught me a lot. You just uh, you got to trust your instincts, and and at the end of the day, it's it's up to you. And so, um, you know, I had a lot of people that were they were really, um, oh, I think they were upset or hurt. You know, that Chris switched parties. He was such a strong Republican, and so a lot of people came to help me. Uh, just because they they didn't like what he did, and um, you know they they wanted to um, you know make sure that he didn't get elected by switching parties. I think I think a lot of what he was trying to do was to do what what uh, Chris Coster had done, and I think every race and I think every person is different, and it and it didn't transcend um, to uh, Chris Benjamin. And you know to me um, the the best way to um, you know to uh, I think the best way to survive in something like that is just win, you know, and and not worry about getting even or revenge. Just win, and so so we won pretty handily in two thousand. The reason, and the other reason I wanted to mention this race, besides the weirdness, was this was also the venue, and I think that this ad was used in other Senate races for one of the most befuddling oh, and yeah. befuddling and and logically inept ads that I've ever heard. <laughs> And I'm not trying to bring back bad memories or anything, but I do want to play a snippet of this ad that was run against you by Chris Benjamin in 2008. Oh, merci, David Pierce. Merci for $880 million. Your vote has paid us handsomely. <laughs> David Pierce. He voted to give our tax dollars to a French-Canadian company <laughs> while we're losing jobs here at home. Now, I mentioned this at the time when I was working for the Columbia Daily Tribune, but... I just have to mention to our, our listeners, Quebec was what this ad was talking about, not France. Yet, for whatever reason, they had a stereotypical Frenchman in like a beret and like a it, it was it was absurd on its face already. But it's Quebec is not France. They're well, two different entities. I studied French for five years in college and high school. And that's a lousy French accent. So I, I you don't ne- I mean, I don't I don't I don't know if I want you to necessarily respond to that because it was almost seven years ago. But I just wanted to make a comment that it was a pretty ridiculous ad. at the Well, time. you wanted an excuse to play it. I want an excuse to play it. Um, but in 12 in 2012, you were kind of in a different situation, too, because re- redistricting put Johnson County in a district, as you mentioned, that was very much more mid-Missouri-based. You had to win a primary again, and you basically had to transverse a district that you 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 hadn't basically represented besides Johnson County again. Yet again, you won handily. I don't even think it was close in the Republican primary. So was there is there any secret to your success of winning these like unusual elections that I just mentioned? Well, yeah, it's just extremely hard work, um, both in 2008 and 2012. I mean, that for the most part, it was my full-time job. You know, you work at, wake up every day and just think, where do I, where do I go? Who do I talk with? How do I campaign? 
Um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch in, in 2012, uh, they, they kind of looked at the races. Jane Cunningham, who was totally redistricted out of a district, they said hers was the most changed during redistricting, and they, and they said mine was the second most. And so um, I had a district that had eight counties. Seven of those counties were new. And so it was like a brand-new district. I just had my home county. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can cry about it. You can be upset about it. You can quit, uh, or you just work hard. And uh, you just take it one day at a time. You, you focus on the primary first. Put everything, all your energy, all your money in that. And then if you win that, then you're, you, uh, you're alive for another day. And Indeed. And we'll ask you a little bit about your political future at the end of the show, but we want to transition into issues. Sure. Um, Senator Pierce is the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, which I would argue is probably one of the most influential committees in the legislature dealing with education. There are comparable committees in the House, but they're kind of split between like K through 12 and higher education. If I'm not mistaken, Senator, pretty much all education related bills from both of those spheres go through your committee. Is that correct? That's right. All, all policy issues. Now, we do have a separate appropriations committee, which does take into consideration education funding. But, yeah, we, we do all the policy. So I wanted to ask you kind of about the uproar at the University of Missouri system and at the University of Missouri Columbia. And beyond just getting a reaction to it, I want to kind of get a sense because you are both the chairman of the education committee and you also sit on the appropriations committee whether the university system and especially the University of Missouri-Columbia should be fearful that they're going to be um, cut as far as funding basically based off of legislative angst over what's happened over there in the last few months. So what's kind of your take on that situation? Well, your phrase legislative angst I think is very accurate. Uh, There's a lot of people who are very concerned, very upset over uh, the University of Missouri and what's happened since the first part of November. Um, you know, this is something that affects all of us. And so it's not just Columbia. It's not just the central part of, of our state. It's everywhere. And, uh, you know, when I go out and talk to folks uh, in my district or here in the Capitol, people are, are, are very upset. And so I, I do know there's been a couple of bills filed that deal on the policy side. And then, you know, obviously, if you want to make a statement or if you want to get uh, groups or, or institutions' attention, then um, when you can threaten uh, or make points with uh, budgeting, uh, that does get attention. And so that's kind of where we are right now. I think at the end of the day, every, everyone wants the University of Missouri to be successful. Uh, we don't want to keep going down this path of, of, uh, of embarrassment, of, uh, of, of a lack of direction. That doesn't, that doesn't help anybody. And so I, I think fundamentally we, want, we all want a positive change, um, but we can't change the past. I mean, we can't turn the clock back to the first part of November and play over. And so uh, where do we go from here? And, and so, yeah, I have a lot of concern. You know, I'm an alumni of that institution. My father was, was from there. And, and a lot of people have the, the exact same story and same relationship. So, so we want to we wanna hopefully move forward. Now, there have been some accusations by former uh, MU President Tim Wolf in this explosive letter that came out a few days ago that, among other things, uh, alleged that um, Appropriations Chairman Kurt Schaefer um, had tied uh, or was th- threatening to cut university funding over his dispute with the university regarding uh, a, an academic leave granted law professor Josh Hawley, who is challenging Schaefer in the uh, Republican primary for um, Missouri Attorney General. Now, Schaefer has flatly denied that's the case and says the record speaks for itself as far as what the university has gotten. But I'm just wondering, as a member of the committee, What's your sense as far as tying the 
I mean, any ties from the funding to um, either that issue or Planned Parenthood or other things that where the university has found itself at odds with some legislators? Well, you know, that that's a controversial issue, you know, to uh, allow someone a leave of absence uh, to run for office and they get their job back or, or in a case where that person might be up for tenure. Um, it's, it's a pretty complicated, pretty messy situation. Um, now, I personally have not heard uh, Senator Schaefer talk about that. Uh, nor seeking retributions to the appropriations process. And so I haven't heard anything about that. I know the issue on Planned Parenthood, uh, again, extremely controversial, um, but, but I think it's the right decision for the university to, to sever their ties with, uh, with the uh, uh, Planned Parenthood and, and the abortion services that were provided. Um, and, you know, the appropriations process is, doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, uh, when you're going through that process, you take a look at, at uh, outcomes, you take a look at, at the image, you take a look at, at what's going on, and so that has to be a part of, of the process. Um, now, at the end of the day, I, I don't see that there will be a major reduction in funding, but I do think that, uh, you know, for example, if certain um, um, programs or certain uh, positions are still there, I mean, it would not be inconceivable to zero those things out and take that out of the budget. Yeah, I, I just kind of want to get a little bit more specific because I mentioned legislative angst over a lot of things. But what specifically do you think is is riling up? legislators about the University of Missouri system. I've heard it's the fact that the former UM system president, Tim Wolf just did not get along with legislators. It could be the Planned Parenthood situation. It could have just been how the protests were handled. What are you kind of hearing as far as the specificity on why the University of Missouri system is in kind of a, a little bit of hot water here? Jason, I think it's all the above. I don't think it's it's uh, one or the other. I mean, I, just a lot of, of issues. And, and, you know, it just seems like every day there's something else that comes out. And can't we get a break, you know? Um, let's let's just focus on, on educating students and, and having a, a good uh, outcome from that. And so I think all those things are, are somewhat clouding uh, the situation. Um, and, you know, we got to learn from these. I, I don't think you can just ignore it. And um, so I, I think people do want um, – uh, some results. I do know the uh, the issue of Melissa Click uh, that has really resonated a lot of uh, around the Capitol. Um, about a hundred of us, and I was included in that, uh, uh, signed a letter that that we felt that she should no longer be associated with the university. And um, you know that's that's one that people are going to follow. It's very identifiable. It's very personal. It's very passionate. And uh, you know I I think that uh, that is going to be one issue that that will. Um, draw a lot of, of criticism if she's still allowed to stay at the university. Now, the reason there were mass protests at the University of Missouri-Columbia last year was because many African-American students believed that there was racial discrimination, a racial divide on campus. I know that when I was at the University of Missouri from 2002 to 2006, there was a protest over a very racially charged column that got printed in one of the newspapers. Are any legislators seeing validity in any of those claims from protesters or students that there there are racial issues on campus that need to be addressed? And I guess conversely, if there are, is there really anything the legislature can do about that rather than just let the university system kind of handle that in-house, essentially? Well, I think the very fact that, that students uh, feel uncomfortable or feel that there are racist tendencies or racist attitudes means that there's something there. And, and I don't think you can just dismiss that or, or tell people to ignore it or be tough. Um, and so I think those need to be addressed. 
and uh, whether that's to the administration or um, a diversity officer or or different programs, uh, I think those those should be explored and and promoted. And so I don't think anyone thinks that you should tolerate uh, an attitude of racism or that students should be uncomfortable. You know, um, to me, I think the fact that uh, that African Americans are looking at getting a higher education, are looking at the University of Missouri as a, as a key to their future, I think that's great. And we should promote that and and uh, try to encourage that as much as we possibly can. And the fact that that students might not feel comfortable or feel threatened, uh, I think that's a problem. And so, uh, how do you go about doing that, though? And so, um, I, I think that 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 the one thing that I hear a lot when I go out of my district is who's in charge? Uh, can you let students run the institution? Um, can um, uh, you know protests and things like that? be the norm of running the institution because once you go down that road uh how do you stop that and so i think that's where we are right now i want to transition into another educational issue which is the school transfer law for our listeners there is a law in the books that allows uh, students from unaccredited school districts to transfer to adjoining uh, school districts and that was a big issue in st louis county because of the normandy school district becoming unaccredited and basically melting down The reason I'm mentioning it with our guest is because Senator Pierce was kind of at the center of two pieces of legislation that ended up passing the legislature, but didn't end up being enacted because Governor Nixon vetoed it. So before we ask any questions, I am going to play a clip from Governor Nixon's State of the State speech, where I think that he alludes to the fact that these transfer bills that I just mentioned were not uh, enacted. There were some who doubted whether our students and schools were up to the challenge who said the new state standards were too tough, too ambitious. I disagreed. I knew that if we raised our expectations, our students would rise to meet them. No gimmicks or voucher schemes, just great teachers, the right tools, strong communities, and a shared commitment to excellence. And you know what? We're getting results. Test scores are rising. Our graduation rate is now in the top 10 in the nation. And more high school graduates are college ready. So one of the reasons I played that is he mentioned gimmicks and voucher schemes, which I don't know if it's a direct allusion to the 2014 bill, which allowed students in unaccredited districts to transfer to a non-sectarian school, but that was certainly something that raised the ire of the governor. So with that backdrop in mind, I kind of want to get a sense of like what it was like dealing with this issue as such a central player in it. And I assume that it was not without a lot of frustration, given that it didn't get into law, essentially. Is that a fair assumption? It was, it was a really tough issue. And, uh, you know, we worked the last two years to pr- try to give some uh, alternative for students that were in unaccredited school districts. Uh, the first year that we did that, uh, the governor vetoed it because of uh, we did give an alternative for private non-sectarian schools uh, if they'd exhausted all other possibilities before doing that. And the governor vetoed that. The next year, uh, the governor said that he would uh, entertain a, a uh, expansion of charter schools and virtual schools if we took that off the table. So if we wouldn't talk about private non-sectarian schools, then he would uh, be supportive of the bill. I felt we did that. I felt we met that commitment, and yet he still um, uh, vetoed the bill. Um, and so I think the legislature acted uh, in a wise way, very prudently, and 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 yet the governor chose to do that. And so you had students that did not have the option uh, that that were basically trapped in unaccredited school districts. And you know how how long can you turn your backs on those students? And uh, it's not just a Riverview Gardens or Normandy problem. 
Uh, it's the entire state, and it's a state policy. So very, very frustrating. I, I, th- oh, yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, I, I think one of the interesting things of why you, you actually carry that bill is I don't think throughout your entire legislative career you were ever seen as like a quote-unquote voucher person. In fact, I think you actually clashed with lawmakers and interest groups that were kind of in favor of school choice in the past. So it seemed like you were almost stepping out of your rhetorical comfort zone to bring consensus to this very difficult issue, and yet the governor didn't end up signing on to it. Well, you know, tough times require require tough choices. And um, and so I I think that with the the issue of the private nonsectarian schools, it was very, very narrow, very, very focused. Um, And those schools had to be already in operation. They had to be accredited. It would only apply to those uh, uh, districts that were unaccredited in and of themselves. And so quite honestly, it probably wouldn't have affected many people at all. And so, um, yes, it was a little bit out of what traditionally maybe I had thought about. But, you know, when you've got unaccredited school districts, when students aren't getting a good education, you've got to provide some opportunities. And leadership is not just saying no. And so I felt that we really had some good op- options out there. Now, in the meantime, and the governor was correct in his state of the, of the state, is Riverview Gardens has really improved. And uh, uh, Scott Spurgeon, who's a superintendent there, was was personally recognized. He's done a wonderful job. His team there, uh, administrators and teachers, are doing a great job. I've toured one of their schools there, and so they're they're going the right direction, and and that's a good thing. So now, <clears throat> with all this in mind, going forward, what's going to happen or not happen? Is this issue just going to be dead this session, or will there be some sort of new effort without certain controversial? Uh, provisions. I'm just interested as far as looking ahead. Well, uh, controversy is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> so some <laughs> some things that, that it is and some not. Um, I do think one um, philosophical thing that most of us agreed on is that accreditation should probably be done by buildings as opposed to entire districts. And so if you have some buildings uh, in, a, in an unaccredited district that are doing a good job, that's great. And those students uh, should be able to be there. They should be encouraged to stay in those accredited buildings. And so I think as we go forward that we should be doing accreditation based building by building as, an, as opposed to just uh, accrediting an entire district. And just kind of a, a parting question on this. You're not going to be in the legislature after 2017. But one of the assumptions that I've had is um, since the, the, the governor had drew this pretty hard line in the sand when he was running, that he was not going to support anything that he perceived as a quote-unquote voucher bill. I have not heard Chris Coster draw that similar line in the stand, and I have not heard any of the Republican gubernatorial candidates draw that line in the sand. So do you think that there's maybe some light at the end of the tunnel on this issue when Nixon leaves office, regardless of who wins the governorship this year? Well, I, I think there will be a different direction with ever, whoever the next governor is, and and I think that would be one area. Now, look, I'm I'm a strong believer in public education, and and I don't u- unilaterally favor vouchers. Uh, I think that you any time that you take um, public funds to find to fund private education, you're losing. And so, uh, to me, that that's one thing that since I've been in the legislature, I've always been opposed to. Uh, however, when we had the option for the private nonsectarian schools, I thought for those very few isolated districts, it was a good option. So, uh, um, you know, that I think that's going to be a public uh, issue that, that we're going to keep debating in the future. Absolutely. So I want to transition in, in the few minutes we have left to ethics. It's the topic du jour, usually is during an election year. And 
there's been a lot of things proposed, uh, restrictions on lobbyist gifts, restrictions on the, the revolving door that lawmakers can become lobbyists, some personal financial disclosure uh, things as well. But one of the things that I noticed that you have actually put forward as a sponsor is um, reining in unlimited campaign donations. What I think is notable here is that I believe that you were one of the people in 2008 that voted to get rid of campaign contribution limits. Um, what kind of prompted the, the change of heart on that issue? We've had other people on this show basically say it was a mistake. Um, what, what was kind of your, your thought process behind that? Well, regrettably, I did vote for that in 2008. Um, the reason why I did is that uh, one of our statewide candidates, um, one of his contributors, um, uh, developed uh, 99 different packs at $1,000 a piece to basically give that candidate uh, $99,000. Now we're time, talking about Rex Sinkfeld, just so our listeners know. Yes. So we continue. And at that time, there were there were limits. And so I think the, the, the thought was to uh, just do away with the limits and just, uh, just rely on transparency. Um, I voted for it, and I've been here um, 13 years. I think that's probably the worst vote that I've ever taken since I've been here. And if I could take it back, I would. Um, I Why? Because it's not working. Um, when you have um, uh, folks that are giving million-dollar checks, checks for a half a million dollars, $250,000 checks, $100,000 checks, uh, it's, I, I think it pollutes the system. Uh, we're one of the few states in the country that do not have um, campaign contribution limits, and, and, and we can do better. And so I, I really think that if, we're, if we want to have true ethics reform, we have to have limits on campaign contributions. The, it's done on the federal level. I believe 46 other states have it. Uh, we have seen it is not working, and, and I, I, I definitely would like to get limits back on. Well, how much um, agreement do you have among Republicans? I know there's, as a general rule, most Republican legislators who I've talked to including some GOP leaders in the House and Senate, have indicated that this is kind of a DOA issue and, and that limits won't be reinstated. What are you hearing? Well, it, I know it faces an uphill battle, um, and I don't think it's necessarily Republican or Democrat. Um, I, just, I just think it, it's something that we must do. Um, you know, I, I was in a race in 2012, and my opponent got $200,000 from one donor. And, uh, you know, to me, that, that affects races. I mean, that affects outcomes. And uh, I just think we need to have some limits. Now, I don't care what the limits are. My bill says $1,250 for state reps, $2,500 for senators, and $5,000 for statewides. To me, the numbers aren't that important, but, but I think there has to be some limits. And, you know, we're spending so much time uh, talking about ethics reform. We're worried about if a lobbyist takes me out for a cheeseburger, but we don't care if that, that, that same lobbyist or some group gives me a million dollars. Uh, and so um, we, I think that's where we really need to focus on, on these huge campaign contributions. Yeah, and I, I've mentioned this on the show almost ad nauseum, and I apologize if I'm beating a dead horse here, but we've had people on the show who have voted for that 2008 bill. Scott Roop, Jamila Nasheed, Rob Schaff, Jim Lemke. Those, you know, Jamila Nasheed's a Democrat. I would not, con- would not say that she's conservative. Rob Schaff and Jim Lemke are probably – two of the most conservative legislators in the entire uh, General Assembly, and they all have come to the same conclusion that those votes were a mistake. Yet your predecessor in the Missouri Senate, Chris Coster, voted to undo campaign contribution limits as both a Republican and a Democrat. And Joe, as far as I know, he's never done what you just did and said he regretted it or not. Do you find that a little unusual that that's the case when the Missouri Democratic Party seems to be 
making this such a big rhetorical issue that their gubernatorial candidate doesn't support campaign contribution limits? Oh, I, you know, I, I can't really speculate on that. I can just be responsible for my own actions. Um, you know, I wish I could take that vote back. I can't. So uh, the next best thing I can do is put up a bill and try to get limits put back on. Now, in fairness, none of the Republican candidates for governor, and there's four major ones, have pressed for a return to campaign donation limits either. So uh, do you think that maybe after this election, depending on what happens, that there may be renewed interest in the General Assembly on doing this? Because as you mentioned, there are a lot of huge checks flying around. Well, I hope so. And, and really, my bill wouldn't even go into effect in 2016, so it wouldn't affect this race. Uh, but yeah, I, I hope that that dialogue is out there. What, what's your thought on the other ethics bills that have been put up? I mean, I kind of mentioned them before, but there has been some argumentation that, you know, I, I have heard one argumentation that those ethics bills that are being talked about, which deal with lobbyist expenditures and lobbyist influence, are kind of fraying at the edges if they don't deal with campaign contributions, which you just mentioned. But do you have any like philosophical objections to any of those things that have been passed through the House yet that are coming to the Senate right now? No, I, I think the ones that are out there are okay. Uh, I, I don't think it really gets to the heart of the matter, which are the huge uh, campaign checks that are, that are flowing out there. Um, I think limiting... Um, um, lobbyists' uh, gifts to elect officials. I think I think having a limit on there that's fine. Um, and uh, the revolving door part, I think I think that's fine. Uh, people that leave early to become lobbyists, I think the uh, concept is is that person should pay for uh, the cost of a special election. I think those things are good, but I think that's all very, very minor uh, compared to not having limits on campaign contributions. In the last couple of minutes that we have here, we kind of mentioned many times that you, this is your last year in the Missouri Senate. You are barred mm-hmm. from running. For term limits, and to be to be frank, Senator, I I actually thought that you were a potential statewide candidate, given again your ability to win tough elections in the in both of your Senate districts. But but from what I've gathered, I I haven't heard of you thinking of running any in this particular election cycle. Are you? What's kind of your your short term and long term political plans um, when it comes to your political future? Well, uh, I'm not going to run for any office in 2016, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, uh, I waited 16 years uh, from my uh, first race to my second race. So you never know what's out there. Uh, You know, I I think you need to kind of see what the climate is out there, uh, what positions are available and where you can make a contribution. And, oh, by the way, do you you think you can win or do you have a good chance? And so... um, I don't know. I might, I might run for an office sometime in the future. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the state Senate. Very, very gratifying. I think I've made a difference, and, and I think this, the districts that I've represented are in better shape than, than when I got there. And so I don't know, um, you know, as far as political office, it, it's, I think everyone should run for office at least once in their life and have that ability to serve, it, it, it gives you a great perspective. It does, is your, like, um, stress level decreased exponentially that you're not running for anything this cycle? Because I, yes. I, 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 I encounter, for example, House Speaker, former House Speaker Tim Jones occasionally, and he decided not to run for anything for at least another couple cycles, and he seems, ha- like, happy as a clam, essentially. Do you have that yeah. kind of similar mindset that after two four-year election cycles that were pretty tough that you're essentially getting a breather this time around? Well, what what the exciting thing is, is I can really, really, really focus on the state Senate. And I don't have to worry about every weekend raising money or traveling around the state. 
um, I can really focus on on the Senate and uh, you know things like touring the Senate. I'm I'm putting on a, a a program on Main Street for all the small towns in my district, uh, and really doing the things I was elected to do. So and if I was running statewide, I wouldn't have a chance to do that. And so uh, that's good. And so uh, um, I think that's been the biggest uh, source of relief in in all this. Well, um, we will let you go. Continue being relieved that you're not running for anything this year. And hey, maybe he can get back into 4-H. 4-H. You can become <laughs> the, the, the statewide president of 4-H. Thank you so much, Senator, for being on our show. We, we, we appreciate it greatly. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I don't think you're on Twitter, Senator, but we all follow your, I think, chief of staff, Matthew Michelson, who oh, yeah. is a Kool-Aid man. And he is, is besides you, probably the best-dressed uh, staffer or senator in the entire world. So <laughs> You should do a show on him and ask him how he got his nickname. <laughs> I, I, I think that he's next. And, and, and Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, I don't know if he's next per se. We're just joking. We're joking, but maybe this is an incentive for him to run for office and and see if the voters of wherever he lives will vote for somebody who wears wacky suit coats all the time. They <laughs> they did it with you. So That's right. That's right. Until next time, so long. So long. Yeah.